Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata in New York. And I'm Laura Coates here in Washington, D.C., and this is CNN. And tonight, it also happens to be crunch time, Alice, and we're now four days away from Election Day. And if you want to know which states are in a fight to the finish, well, just look at the map. You see all the big names are hitting the trail in the final days. It tells you what you need to know primarily about the race in states where, frankly, Every single vote will count. And then, Laura, there's this remarkable new DeSantis ad that we have to show you that claims to know what God wants. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a protector. So God made a fighter. Oh, my God. Um, we are going to talk about that. I hope so. Uh, plus, the politics of pot. Recreational marijuana is on the ballot in five states, most of them conservative red states. Finally, an issue that's bringing Americans together, getting high. <laughs> well, when you go low, they go high. So I, I had to. I don't know why. It came out. It was a whole thing. Good. But. Fantastic. All right. Let's bring in our experts on that. Here in New York, we have CNN political commentator Scott Jennings and former Clinton White House aide Keith Boykin and Mark McKinnon, former advisor to George W. Bush and John McCain. Gentlemen, great to have you. We'll get to the pot thing in a minute. I do live at 10,000 feet, so I know something about that. being high. All right, we will dive into that momentarily. But first, Mark, when you look at that um, map of where all the biggest names in politics are being deployed to right now from, you know, you can see uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. What does it tell you about the um, anxiety levels? Tells me a lot. If you want to know where Democrats are in trouble, follow, follow Obama, follow Biden. Wherever they are, that spells trouble. They're there because Democrats are in trouble. And where you see Republicans going like Trump, that's where they smell opportunity. So just watch the map. And it, you know, look, look, look where Obama was, Nevada, Arizona. Biden's in Pennsylvania. And he's in New York. Why is, he, in New York. Why is, is Biden in a blue state? Well, because they're in trouble in New York. So... I mean, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about how much trouble the Democrats are, and if, they, if they're sending the president of the United States to New York, <clears throat> then Houston, they got a problem. Let me let the Democrat respond. Hold on. Go. Sure. Well, and we can't say anybody's in trouble when we haven't had an election yet. All we are looking at is poll numbers, and the poll numbers aren't necessarily predictive of what the outcome is going to be. Every vote counts, and the Democrats are racing to the finish line to make sure <laughs> Scott is smiling over there. But, but it's true that every vote counts. We've got to race to the finish line to make sure that we actually reach that point before we make any conclusions. But considering where we were at the beginning of the year, Democrats are not that far off from, I mean, people expected this to be a bloodbath from the beginning of the year. Because yes, but then it, there was a time after Roe versus Wade right. that Democrats we, had we, that surge. Democrats had a surge immediately after Roe versus Wade from about June until September, early September. And now we're sort of coming back to the norm. And so now we are, people are realizing this is a tough race. We need to get every person out there. We can't take this for granted. And we, just because we had a surge in the summer doesn't mean that we're, we're on a roll. We have to run to the finish line. All right, right, Scott, you're chomping the bit. Yeah, I actually wanted to respond to Mark. I actually see Trump's travel a little differently. Biden, I think, is being deployed for political purposes. He can really only campaign in blue states because it's the only place where they'll accept him. But for Trump, he was in Iowa this week, big state for 2024, and he's in Florida, which I assume is an in-your-face DeSantis move. So I interpret Trump's moves really more through the personal lens for him than I do the president's here where he's trying to triage a little bit. Although Iowa could be because Grassley's having some problems. Except uh, that, I mean, don't you think that Scott's right in terms of Donald Trump's motivations? Aren't they oh, always through the personal 100%. lens? I, mean, um, I, I do also want to show you this map of, 
you all know, you'll remember that there was this risky gambit that Democrats made of investing mm. millions of dollars into far-right, what they considered extremist Republican candidates. And so let's see if that has paid off. So here are uh, six races where Democrats did that, you know, rolled the dice on that. And it appears at the moment, uh, Keith, that it did pay off for them. None of these in the polls um, are matching the Democrats. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I think especially in some races in Maryland and Pennsylvania where they, the gubernatorial races in Illinois and the gubernatorial races, it was clearly a, a beneficial decision. Whether it was a smart decision, I don't know if it was because because of the, the fact that the race is so tight, that's $53 million the Democrats spent in the summer that could have been spent on focusing on, on turning, turning out the voters for their own candidates in the party. Yeah, ethically dubious, politically effective. Uh, not in every case. The, the, the candidate you didn't have on there was Carrie Lake where they spent a bunch of money for her opponent trying and helped elect Carrie they Lake. They didn't actually spend any money there. They, they, the Arizona Democratic Party, they, they put an effort behind her, but they didn't actually put any dollars behind that effort. Meaning you think they yeah. put money into Carrie Lake's campaign? No. They, they, yes, they, they, they tried to suggest that the more conservative candidate they, was better for them. They did that. And helped block the moderate. But they didn't, but they didn't put any money in that one. The one, on that, the one on that list that I'm most interested in is Bulldog. Um, um, he is... I think running neck and neck with Hassan. I don't know if he's going to win or not, yeah. but Chuck Schumer's outside group spent at least $5 million at the last minute and I think directly caused him to get the nomination over uh, a more mainstream Republican candidate. If Bulldog wins, uh, you can thank Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer for that one because that was a direct intervention at the last minute and I do believe changed the outcome. By the way, $10, $10 billion is being spent on television. Uh, interesting. There's also a, philosoph- yeah, quickly. a philosophical problem, which is that if these candidates win, then you are the ones responsible, as Scott said, for making them Absolutely. win. And the Democrats really need to, if, 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 it, if it works, and everybody's going to say they're, they're brilliant. But right. if it fails, there's going to be a lot of oh, heads rolling. Absolutely. That. That's why I say it's morally questionable. Yeah. Okay, now we have to play you this, a piece of this DeSantis Get ready, folks. campaign ad. <laughs> Get ready. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said... I need a protector. So God made a fighter. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, kiss his family goodbye, travel thousands of miles for no other reason than to serve the people, to save their jobs, their livelihoods, their liberty, their happiness. So God... It it goes on. It goes on for another minute and a half, basically. I mean, I've heard of Messiah complexes, but this one takes the cake. Mark, what do you see here? I mean, I've been an ad guy for years and done a bunch of presidentials. I've never seen anything like this. I think Ron DeSantis has lost his mind on this. I thought it was a parody when I saw it. And by the way, it's it's a direct ripoff of Paul Harvey, line for line, that he did for farmers. And no attribution to Paul Harvey. Scott? He's hardly the first politician to engage in a little self-aggrandizement. Um, I do think this that... This is messianic. I do, I do think it he's going to... I do think it takes also a tremendous ego to not only run for, but to see yourself as president of the United States. And, and godlike. He's showing himself to have it. <laughs> Mark's been around a few presidential candidates, as have I. I but does that, ta- is that a winning a, message? Oh, well, I mean, I don't, know if, I don't know if this is going to be the determinant item. I think he's going to trounce... Uh, in his race. No, but I mean, just in terms of messaging, do you think that going to that level of saying that basically God, you're the chosen one, you're anointed, I, do you think I mean, that I, that's... Oh, do I think there's an audience for that? Oh, yeah. 
I mean, when I when I look at campaign advertisements, I'm like, who's I think the audience for that? Do I think there's an audience for that? Sure. It's sad that there's an audience for that, though, too, because we live in a, a, se- a country with a separation of church and state, so we shouldn't be appealing to messianic uh, appe- uh, application or reasons for, for being elected. But secondly, there's another issue here with Ron DeSantis in that, you know, he's running, he's basically running for president in his ad, and he, he's feeding into Charlie Crist's argument that this is that he's not serious about filling, fulfilling his term as governor. And so he's putting it out there. This is not an ad for a governor of Florida. This is an ad for guy who wants to be president. But I don't know if his supporters mind. Here's the bigger problem. What it says to me is there's nobody around him saying no. I mean, somebody with some common sense should have said that's out. That's because you think that that ad will hurt him. Unlike 100 percent. This blowback is I'm just telling you, watch it. The blowback on this. I wish I believed that was true. (laughs) I don't think Uh, at least I I think there's something going on. I think the people of Florida like him so much because they have portrayed Florida as a, you know, like this is the model governance for the nation. They, in other words, they think of themselves as being elevated right now because of the way he I'm managed just, the I'm state. saying this just says something about his decision-making. I can see the small circles watch this. Oh, this is great. Go for it. Do it. And, and you go take that to a bigger stage. It's problematic. Laura, your thoughts? Well, first of all, the reason this is probably a resonating ad is because it was the 2014 Rams truck ad where they played off of Paul Farmer. Um, and Paul, uh, Harvey. Paul Harvey on the So God Made a Farmer. So he knows what he's doing. It was successful for that truck campaign. There's always these ads. There was this ad in the Washington Post, I mean, this um, article by Paul Waldman about the politics of symbolic pickup trucks and the idea of trying to connect these dots. And so I think that he was obviously trying to appeal to what has won in a Super Bowl ad in the past. But I think also... I think he's right, and they're all right. This is an ad for a presidential run. This is not an ad just for a gubernatorial race, especially when the polls say something different. But at the end of the day, I mean, it does take, as they say, cojones to go ahead and compare (laughs) oneself to being the anointed one. But you know what? If you're going to tell people I'm the leader of the so-called free world, this might be where you start with that bravado. Who knows? (laughs) Let's ask my panel here, Allison, all about football tonight, all about that 2014 game. Joining me now is CNN political analyst Laura Barone-Lopez, also Liam Donovan, a former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide, and CNN political commentator Maria Cardona. Let's just address this elephant in the room and not talking about ram trucks, but... This was obviously a moment to say, like, I can use this again, say 2024. He, he has his sights beyond Florida, right? Yes, I think absolutely. I think it, it shows a couple of things. The first one is I think he believes that he is absolutely going to win the, um, the gubernatorial election, right? And so it is sort of a setup for what he wants his brand to be going into 24. But I think Mark in New York is right. There will be some blowback. But more than that, I think what it shows is exactly scarily what we saw with people around Trump, which is there's nobody there to say, eh, maybe not such a good idea. Uh, I don't know if you really want to go there right now. There's going to be a bunch of people around him that are going to, you know... You're talking about yes like people, this. of course. Yes. The idea, but you know what? Yes, thing, yes people. Speaking <laughs> of that, I do want to play a clip. I want you guys to respond to this because... Part of the yes man or yes woman philosophy had a lot to do with what is scary to some people and the prospect of deja vu when it comes to 2020 Mm -hmm. election versus now. Listen to what Mandela Barnes had to say about his opponent, Senator Ron Johnson. He essentially says that he's petulant if he decides he's not going to concede defeat if he does lose. Listen to this. 
He's shown us exactly who he is. He didn't commit to accepting the results of the 2020 presidential election, and that's because he didn't get the result that he wanted. This is, uh, I mean, it's, it's petulant, to say the least. A person who would go so far as to say, well, yeah, I didn't get what I wanted, so it can't be right. You know, it's very arrogant. It's very arrogant. It's the height of arrogance. But that's who he's always been. That's who he'll continue to be. So the theme of tonight must be arrogance, right? That's, that's what we're talking about with Sanders in the ad they were talking about. But what do you, how do you see it? Is the idea, is it setting up for the notion that, look, they've been talking about the prospect of there being widespread fraud in 2020. They don't feel it's been resolved fully. Biden had a closing argument. Student loan debt was recently, but also now about democracy in peril. Is he picking up on that and essentially saying, look, even the president thinks that. So Johnson's saying, that's where I am. What do you think? Well, I think in both these cases, this is an instance of media bait. This is, mm. this is to launch a thousand segments on CNN talking about, you know, does Ron DeSantis, has he gone, has he gone mad? When no, this is, this is about triggering the mainstream media. This is about getting them to question these tactics or question whether you're an election denier. Because I think when you pick at these issues and they stick to their stick to their guns, it ends up looking a little bit hysterical. And I think you mean Ron Johnson, the idea well, of taking it, that statement, or both? With, well, with I think with that's the through line in my okay. opinion. But but with Johnson, I think it's it shouldn't be a gotcha question, but it's become a gotcha question to to acknowledge that one should you know respect the mm. the outcome of an election is an implicit swipe at the former president which is not something that pre- that Republicans want to do right now. That's interesting you say that the idea of sort of the gotcha I remember in the conversation a few years ago was always do you have confidence in this person have you lost confidence and that was always the way that question was asked of the press secretary but then you think about um, congressman Dan Crenshaw on the 2020 election lie and he essentially says thinking of bait um it was a bait and switch. It was always kind of a lie. Listen to what he said. It was always a lie. The whole thing was always a lie. And it was a lie meant to rile people up. And, uh, you know, I've talked about this ad nauseum. It really made me angry because I'm like the, the promises you're making that you're going to that you're going to challenge the Electoral College and overturn the election. There's not even a process for you to do that. It doesn't even exist. I mean, I'm like, I was always like, what the hell are we doing? And I would tell that to people kind of behind closed doors, too, especially a lot of the rabble rousers, like like the political um, personalities, not even the politicians. We definitely had the arguments behind closed doors in the Republican Party before that. But even just the the others like, yeah, we know that. But we just you know, people just need their last they're like their last hurrah. Like they just need to feel like we fought one last time. Remember, Laura, he was somebody who voted to certify the election. So this is on his whole These Truths podcast. What do you make of that? Well, look, I think that there's two big things right here that I that I want to point out, which is that um, there are ramifications to that big lie, mm-hmm. uh, to the lie about election results. January 6th and the violence that day was a direct result of the fact that the president repeated over and over again this lie. Um, I don't think it's a gotcha question to ask candidates, whether they're Democrat or Republican, are you going to accept the results if you lose? That is a very serious question now. We have seen where lies about not accepting election results leads to violence. I was just in Michigan and I was talking to election workers there and uh, ones who have been running elections for 20 years or more. They're scared. Mm-hmm. They're upset and they're scared and they're physical like, safety. yes, physical okay. safety. One of the, the city uh, clerk of Madison Heights I was just talking to, and she said she now has cameras on her home. She mm-hmm. is not letting her election workers put their last names on their name tags. She is now in constant coordination with local police in a way that she has never been before. And she's tracking external threats that the FBI might send to her. Those are all unprecedented steps that did not happen prior to 2020. Mm-hmm. And they are happening, and she knows they are happening, and she said it because of the 
election deniers that are running up and down the ballot in Michigan. And she said that if she could say something to them, it would be that those lies have consequences, that those words have consequences. So when someone, a candidate like Ron Johnson, as a reporter, it's my job to hold those politicians mm -hmm. accountable, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. And if they're saying, I interviewed Matthew DiPerno, the attorney general candidate in, uh, in Michigan, who is also spreading lies about the 2020 election. And I asked him the same question, the question I asked Dana Nessel, the incumbent attorney general, are you going to accept the results if you lose? She said, yes. He said, I'm going to win. He refused to answer the question. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very serious question that I think every candidate has to answer. In fact, Allison, on that point, I mean, we've heard time and time again that sort of pivot that uh, Laura is alluding to, the idea of you know not just saying the yes or no, which is a very difficult thing for people to say, apparently. And you could, to if, if it was a gotcha question, which I don't think we collectively agree that it is, um, couldn't you just answer it? In the affirmative? Yes. Well, I mean, we also have a word for that that we used to teach our kids, sore losers. What is this? Sore Ooh, losers. Two Don't words. be a okay. sore yeah. yeah. Thank you. Math is not my, my strong suit, but sore losers. I'm with you. It's amazing how many uh, elected officials are now willing to be unabashed sore losers and say mm. it out loud. So, so yes. Okay, but Laura. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Do you know what else is on the ballot on Tuesday? Hmm. Pot. Voters in five states decide whether to legalize recreational marijuana, and my panel has some stoned, I mean, strong feelings <laughs> about that coming up. Pot is on the ballot this election day. Take a look at the map. Voters in Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North and South Dakota will decide whether recreational marijuana use should be legal in their states, potentially joining the 19 other states plus the District of Columbia where recreational use is currently legal. Four of those five states are red states. So what does that say about the politics of pot? Let's ask our panel. They are Scott Jennings, Keith Boykin, and Mark McKinnon. It says that pot's the great uniter. That's what it says. It says, finally, we found a bipartisan issue. I mean, that is what it says. Scott doesn't like this one bit. I, I recognize that my views are in the minority of Americans on this what issue. What are your views? I think we are going to come to, to regret this. I mean, we need more drugs in this country like I need another hole in the head. I mean, this is a country that 40% of Americans aren't in the, who are able-bodied, should be in the workforce, aren't participating. We've got kids you know, suffering from learning loss. We have adults whose lives are absolutely ruined and lost, and we need more drugs in this country. Yeah, we need direction need and purpose. Some medicinal marijuana yeah. to make them better so they can go back I, to work. See, this I do draw a distinction between, this is, this is recreational, but I do draw a distinction between medicinal, which is for pain management, and recreational. I know you don't draw that distinction, but in terms of recreational, does, doesn't Scott have a point? Like, do we need more people in altered states walking around? I don't see the problem with it. I may be in pot right now. I may be smoking weed today. You I mean, may be. I, I have done it recently. And I don't see a problem with it because I feel like I'm capable of being a functioning human being and, and productive citizen even while using marijuana, as are many other millions of Americans as well. And I, I don't think that's problematic. And the majority of Americans know it's not problematic. Even President Biden... At, at 70-something years old, has come to realize that it's not as troubling of a health issue as Scott suggests that it is. And 19 states have already legalized it. If these five states do, it'll be half of the nation will have legalized marijuana. That's that's a dramatic shift from where we were 10 years ago when Colorado, your state, became the first state to do it. And I remember being back in the Bill Clinton campaign back in 1992 when he said, I didn't inhale 
We've come a long we way have since come that time. A long time. way since then. Now uh, people are consuming it in droves. And they're not ashamed of it anymore. Absolutely. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be ashamed of using. I've it. done a lot of personal research on this. Yeah, I live outside of outside, outside of Breckenridge, Colorado, where it was first legalized even before it was in Colorado. Uh, and Colorado's had 10 years' experience now. There's no correlated increase in crime. I think it's way safer than alcohol. And by the way, Scott, the reason that a lot of these very conservative states are doing, show me the money, show me the revenue. That's where... Have they won you over? That's why these states are... No, and if any of my four children are watching this show, A, you should be in bed. B, under no circumstances should you... I'm going to look right at you. Under no circumstances should you be doing any drugs at all. Say no to everybody who's trying to take you down this really stupid path. (laughs) Uh, Okay, let's talk about magic mushrooms. Um, so they're, they're also on the ballot. So, uh, Colorado, your state may legalize shrooms and Oregon is the first state to have done so. And then interestingly in Oregon on the ballot now, some communities want to ban them. So they don't like that all the whole state has legalized it for their community. They want to ban it. Are you in favor of legalizing shrooms? Also done some personal research. on. Yeah. Tell us. (laughs) Um, I, I think that we're, that this should go slowly, but should be looked at. I think deregulation is on the screen and should be because for med- medicinal purposes, they're finding a lot of medicinal upside for people uh, like veterans and PTSD issues. That, is, that So I think more research needs to be done, but I think it should be done. It should be looked at. And it is also for used for fighting depression. And what they're, they've done in Oregon is have it be distributed at centers. In other words, it's yeah. not for home I think recreation. under medical under supervision. supervision. Yeah. And that's an interesting concept. I mean, a lot of people, there's microdosing. There's just also, there's a, a new look at how mushrooms and psilocybin, which is the drug in it. Every time I look at Scott, he's giving me, <laughs> I'm sorry. he's curling yeah. his I lip mean, at I me. Mean, there's just right, this, Scott, I mean, all drugs are based on plants of some kind. And so if psilocybin <laughs> helps fight depression, what's your beef? I, I'm sorry. I just, I've, I look, I know I'm, um, I, maybe I'm in the minority here. I just feel like a lot of this is trying to rationalize People who just want to do drugs because they like to do drugs, people, and and I just don't know where does this where does this lead us? Is this really what we want for our future? Do you think people should be allowed to use alcohol and tobacco? Uh, I mean, we, we've crossed that Rubicon in this country. Well, but we get to make a decision. But tobacco use is, is going down, I guess. I mean, yeah, but but alcohol and tobacco are more destructive than than marijuana is. We know that. We're talking about magic mushrooms. Now. I, okay, but even <laughs> we talk about even we talk yeah, about but, even, but, but even we talk. But you're you're against both of those. Though. Even when we talk about mushrooms, my personal belief is probably far to the left of tell of, us of most people. But I think that we should decriminalize all the possession of all drugs, and we should legalize marijuana completely for recreational and medicinal uses. But I don't think we should be targeting people for using drugs, even if they are problematic for them, we should be trying to get help for those people and get substance. What about dealing drugs? Dealing is a different thing. I think we should have penalties for that. But for the for the simple possession, I don't think anyone should be in, pr- in prison for, for hap- happening to have a jug- drug in their possession. All right, gentlemen, that was interesting. Thank you all for sharing your personal views on that. Laura? Should I order your panel some munchies? <laughs> uh, for three me? of the three of us. <laughs> I like these counting me. I like this. From what I heard, Scott Jennings is not going to be hungry. At all. I'll have I'll so, have a glass of water. Please. That's okay. all I really want. <laughs> there you go. I I hear you a thousand percent. You know, it's interesting because of course. Part of the idea talking about crime being on the ballot, maybe an invisible ink in some places and then red ink in other places. Remember, it wasn't more than a month ago, right? I think that President Biden um, had that proclamation essentially to say that the idea of possession or marijuana in one's possession and recreational or otherwise, that led to mass pardons. It didn't actually uh, mean a liable release from federal prison, if anyone, but still... 
the Rubicon may have been crossed in that respect. So we will see what happens on the ballot as well. Really fascinating. Also fascinating that half of an entire company was, let's just say, unceremoniously laid off, Allison, and now come the lawsuit. So just what is going on at Twitter? We'll try to tap into it next. Look, nearly 50% of Twitter's workforce was laid off today. That means their headcount of some 7,500 employees is now down around 3,700. That after the world's richest person, Elon Musk, acquired the platform. The self-titled chief twit, according to his own handle, tweeting tonight, regarding Twitter's reduction in force, unfortunately, there is no choice when the company is losing over $4 million a day. Everyone exited was offered three months of severance, which is 50% more than legally required. A group of employees actually are now suing the company, alleging the layoffs violated the Warren Act. Kara Swisher, host of the On with Kara Swisher and Pivot podcasts, is here. And Liam Donovan and Maria Cardona are both back. You and I have talked a lot yeah. about Twitter over the years and over the months. And I'm wondering, did you kind of see this coming? Yeah. And if so, we like it. we talked about this, yeah. does, does the way it actually unfolded surprise you? Kind of jerky. It's, you know, there's other tech people. Brian Chesky at Airbnb did layoffs and was quite nice about it. Mm. It's never good to do a layoff, right? And this layoff is, you know, people were, were caught unawares. There's all these roving bands of Elon stands in the, in the office doing things, um, changing everything, um, including editing documents the way they like it and things like that, which is fine. He bought the company. He can do that. Um, the layoff is typical. I think It's a lot. <laughs> and I think Twitter was going to do a layoff also. Um, what he's paying, he has to pay. Just so you know, the two months he has to pay. Mm-hmm. Under California law, it might be higher in Europe. It could be higher in New York, where most of the Twitter employees are in New York or less. I believe it's California or New York. Um, and so he's going to have to pay the two months. The one-month severance is not particularly generous. It's what many tech companies do that, and much more, mm. depending on the years. And, but then they have to sign away a document to get that one month of salary. And it probably says non-disparagement, don't talk about the company, yeah. tweet nicely at Elon. I don't know what it says. Well, I mean, maybe all of the above. Who knows what it says? But, you know, the Warren Act <laughs> we're talking about is really talking in part about having to, well, as the acronym suggests, warn. Normally it's a certain yeah. number of employees and having given a certain lead time to be able to do with this. But what might surprise people are, um, are the types of departments where they laid off people from. And I want to hear your reaction. Some of it includes the human rights department. Department, the ethical AI, marketing and communication, search, public policy, wellness, curation, trust, and safety. That's a lot of different departments that are affected. And we are a couple days away from, obviously, a midterm election and two years away at this point from the presidential. And you say you've noticed something already in the air. Yeah. And and I think what is most concerning about all of those departments, those are the the departments that kind of take care of humanity, right? And there was actually a, a, a study done by researchers from Montclair University that showed that there was a measurable spike in hostility, vulgar language, hate tweeting against people based on their ethnicity, their gender, their religion. Hmm. And they actually measured it. Like from the, mo- from the couple of weeks leading up to when Elon Musk took it over, there were about 84 hostile tweets an hour. The moment that he took it over, from that moment on to noon the next day, there were more than 370 mm. hostile tweets an hour. I mean, they have 
measurable. But what are you attributing that. that to? Is it is it the or not you personally? But yeah. what is the thought that the assumption is he would have a free There's speech a notion? Of people testing it. That's just all. testing the back. Well, and, and they haven't changed the content moderation rules yet. Right. They have but, not done that. And the guy who runs that, Yul Roth, did yeah. point out correctly that only 15% of that staff, the trust and safety staff, were laid okay. off. They, they definitely laid off in other areas, like disability areas that are unfortunate. Liam, but, what are your thoughts on this, too? I yeah. want to come back to you, Marie, but what are your thoughts? I mean, to me, this parallels the, the, the Ron DeSantis stuff. This is, this is all about sort of, you know, triggering the media. It's about going after things that are seen as woke. I mean, this is, this is Elon's brand, right? He came in to clean house okay. and go after things that are seen as, I mean, these are corporate departments that, if you know his the Elon stands as Karen mentioned, they the existence of these departments is mind blowing to folks that that follow Elon and, and are along for that program. So I think this is a feature, not a bug. I think mm. he's picking these sorts of fights, and it parallels, I think, the the control of Congress that, that was potentially coming in. I think you know you're seeing it in in you know some of the discourse on the right as advertisers flee. Uh, Twitter, mm-hmm. and uh, you're seeing people suggest that in the sort of realm of woke capital and ESG and social pressure on these sorts of corporations. Yeah. What do you make of that idea? I mean, he, oh. ma- he made that comment earlier oh, he about He's this. Kept thermonuclear war on the people who don't yeah. advertise with them. That doesn't sound like capitalism to me. That right. sounds like communism. I don't know. <laughs> um, I think the, the issue is he's he's angry. They don't like him, and they don't want to advertise. And adver- listen. If Satan had a company that they could sell stuff on, advertisers would advertise on it. Let me be clear. That's right. Um, They maybe Satan drinks coffee. They don't. Or maybe it gets high. Twitter's not a big advertising platform, as you can see by the numbers. So, and it's not a big choice. And one of the things I think is happening is if he lets Trump on, if they leave after that, they look even worse. So. They're like, this is not worth our time. And that's yeah. just made clear he's not going to do that until there's some sort of doesn't matter, outside right. entity. Right? I also think, to your point, Kara, I do think there are people testing it, but I think they're testing it because they see how Elon, in sort of the run-up to his taking it over, was saying yeah. he's going to let Trump on. He doesn't think this moderation or taking people off is fair. He thinks it's an attack against free speech. And so I think once he took it over, people were like, okay, well, let's check this out. The fact that they let go the moderation team is indicative that he is going to be a lot more, there's going to be a bigger allowance for that kind of They didn't let go of the whole moderation team. Right, right. right. I think what it is is that there's usually, like, if there's not thousands of these people, there's 300 of them, 300, which Yael Roth, who's the head of trust and safety there, I think that's what it is. He has other titles. (laughs) Excuse me. But I I don't think... um, you know, they just want to test the system. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's mm-hmm. happening. Well, He's not helping by tweeting I mean, things I, out. I was going to say, we think about it, the idea of um, <coughs> we are maybe past the point, Allison, of testing to see if Twitter is a space where you can really ignore boundaries. So I'm thinking about what the testing must look like at this point because people are not just dipping their toe in that particular pond. They are fully in and invested, and you just wonder what's going to happen when, obviously, the wave crashes on others for collateral damage. Look, all I know is that every day seems like some new drama uh, ever since Elon Musk took over. So we'll see what tomorrow brings. But it doesn't seem like things are evening out yet. Um, All right. Meanwhile, there's this because Kyrie Irving finally apologizing for not disavowing anti-Semitism after being suspended without pay. But the controversy is not over. And Bob Costas is here next. New tonight, Nike ending its relationship with Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving in the wake of Irving tweeting out a link to an anti-Semitic film last week. 
The company issuing a statement saying in part, quote, at Nike, we believe there is no place for hate speech and we condemn any form of anti-Semitism. To that end, we've made the decision to suspend our relationship with Kyrie Irving effective immediately and will no longer launch the Kyrie 8. Tonight, Irving will sit out the Nets game against the Washington Wizards. It's the start of an at least five-game suspension over the controversy. After initially defending his decision to share the content, Irving issued an apology on Instagram late last night, saying in part, quote, To all Jewish families and communities that are hurt and affected from my post, I am deeply sorry to have caused you pain, and I apologize. I initially reacted out of emotion to being unjustly labeled anti-Semitic instead of focusing on the healing process of my Jewish brothers and sisters that were hurt from the hateful remarks made in the documentary. Joining us now, we have legendary sportscaster and CNN contributor Bob Costas. Bob, great to have you here. Hi, Allison. Now that he's issued an actual apology, will he be back on the court after the five-game suspension? Well, what the Nets have said is minimum five games, which, by the way, since he makes between 35 and $40 million, and it's an 80-game or so regular season, this is going to cost him into the low seven figures. It's going to cost him millions of dollars, even if it's only five. And the Nike suspension and could possibly be banishment from Nike. That will cost him tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars. And he's a free agent after this year. He's only 30. His value is going to be less because teams are going to wonder about him. Because it isn't just this. Um, it's that he, you know, he, w- he was a flat earther at one time, uh, an anti-vaxxer. Uh, he's linked to stuff from Alex Jones, a despicable conspiracy theorist who pumps poison into the cultural water supply on a regular basis, and now this. And those who are skeptical are going to say with some justification, he only came around when this five-game suspension, minimum five-game suspension, was levied, which is going to cost him a lot of money. And the condition that the Nets have set forth is that as of right now, he is unfit to be part of their organization. And unless but that was he, before the apology. Yes, but unless he takes, and they still said this, after the apology, they, they didn't use the unfit thing, but they said until he takes remedial steps, goes to counseling, confers with the Anti-Defamation League, and satisfies us that a lesson has been learned, the five games is only a minimum. Mm. So it could be longer. And what should the Nets have done? What should everyone have done? After he tweeted that link, mm-hmm. it sounds like nobody moved with quite the speed and forcefulness that was yes. um, necessary. What, what was the right thing that people should have done here? The right thing was to hold him personally accountable instead of making vague statements to the effect of, of course we stand against hate speech and hate has no place and anti-Semitism has no place. Um, the initial statement from Adam Silver, whom I admire very much, he's been a very good commissioner, happens himself to be Jewish. The initial statement from the league and Adam didn't mention Kyrie by name. It just kind of an anodyne statement that condemned anti-Semitism and hate speech. Finally, they came around, partly because Kyrie kept digging himself in deeper. Jerry Brewer, who's a very good columnist in the Washington Post this morning, described him as both delusional and defiant. And he did a sort of uh, impromptu press conference with the basketball press I guess, night before last, or maybe it was last night. Uh, and he just dug himself in deeper with some sort of weird word salad. And I think at that point, uh, they realized there was no way to distance themselves or to try to split the difference, that they had to just flat out come down on him, and they did. If Kyrie Irving, let's, let's say that he does harbor some conflicted feelings about Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Let's say that this is a teachable moment. Let's say they do some therapy or some mediation or whatever. Yeah. Can he be redeemed? Anybody can be redeemed, in theory, from almost anything if 
if the redemption is sincere, if they've truly learned something, given his prominence, uh, I guess he could be what he claims to be and really hasn't been, some sort of beacon of light, somebody who's illuminating important issues for people. Well, if there are people who share his viewpoint, and sadly, although Twitter shouldn't be viewed as a, a pupil, but we're told that there's a whole lot of support for Kyrie and for Kanye West and uh, anti-Jewish stuff now that Twitter has taken some of the restrictions off in the name of free speech, that there's a lot of support for this. Now, it may be in raw numbers a lot, and we hope percentage of the population, it's actually small, but it's out there. And if those people can be set straight, at least in part, by a redeemed Kyrie Irving, or and now we're really into wishful thinking, a redeemed Kanye West, because they both seem to be on another planet. But if it can happen, yeah, it could, you could turn a bad situation around for the better. It's always possible. Bob, great to have you here. Always thank, great to talk you. to you. We really appreciate it. Laura, your thoughts? Yeah, so important to hear his insight. I mean, just thinking about all the different controversies over the years, I mean, we are really at a fork in the road. So the question will be where things go from here. I mean, will there be opportunity to course correct and use the platform in a way that's productive? I certainly hope so. Yes, I mean, Twitter isn't known for productive discourse always. Well, I mean the actual players and the epiphany of yeah. maybe doing the right thing and that way. I, I'm not as hopeful about course correction in all fields. That is true. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, how about this? Speaking about the youth and what they can teach us, even though he can't vote, a 14-year-old is making his mark on Election Day. And Allison, we're going to tell you all about it. It's My favorite, favorite story. <laughs> favorite story it's of the day. Up next. So Election Day is just four days away, but early voters are already getting a chance to collect those very coveted I Voted stickers. And in Ulster County, New York, they're looking a little bit different this year, Allison. Okay, well, here are some of the entries that teenagers mm-hmm. sent in from the I Voted sticker youth design. So you see I Perfectly Voted normal, there. Perfectly normal, love it. Perfectly normal, patriotic. Mm-hmm. There's an eagle. You see some flag colors, red, white, and blue. Here's the entry that won. Okay. <laughs> I'd like you to look at that sticker. That's the one that won. It is so awesome on so many levels. It is colorful. It has six legs. It has bulging eyes and creepy teeth. This is from 14-year-old Hudson Rowan. It received more than 200,000 votes in this contest, Laura. I love the creativity. And I, I'm telling you, I love it. I think, I think it's... I. You know what? It makes you stop and look. It makes you stop and wonder, honestly... Who did you vote for? Oh, oh, and beyond... That is the question. Who who was your vote? I also feel that on every level, it captures the spirit of these midterms, which is (laughs) terrifying, creepy, and absurd. And I feel that that captures it. I mean, look at that. Like a spider. Maybe it's a web of lies. Maybe it's the over-caffeinated bulging, looking at polls all night long. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's the laugh, the maniacal laugh we'll all have all around 1 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday when we're thinking, are we asleep or are we awake? Do we have a winner? Probably. There it is. A 14-year-old Hudson Rowan, who, who made this, said, it gives off a chaotic vibe. <laughs> yes, it does, Hudson. I like it. Yes, it does. Um, All right. Tell us what you think. What does that I voted sticker (laughs) say to you about the midterms? You can tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. Hashtag CNN sound off. And we'll be right back. 
The crucial midterm elections are coming down to the wire. Candidates have just four days now to make their very final pitch to voters before they head to the polls. Trying times. And with control of the Senate and the House both up for grabs, both parties are barnstorming the critical battleground states. So let's check in with CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. He's at the magic wall for us. So, Harry, where are we on the battle for the Senate? Hey, Allison. So let's just start off with an idea of what's at stake in this election, how close the balance of power in the United States Senate was going into election night. Look at this. We got a 50-50 Senate right now between Democrats and Republicans with Vice President Kamala Harris breaking that tie. So any one seat, any one seat shift could make all the difference in the world. So what are some key states that we're watching? Here are some key Senate races that we're watching Look, we got Wisconsin, we've got Georgia, we've got Pennsylvania, we've got Nevada, we got Arizona. Not on here, also my favorite state, the place where I went to college. New Hampshire is another state that we're watching. But let's dive in, dive in and get an understanding of one of these key states. We're going to be looking at the Keystone State, Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Take a look at how tight the polling is there right now. The choice for Pennsylvania Senate, it's within the margin of error Democrat John Fetterman at 47%, Mehmet Oz at 47%. This race has been tightening this entire last few months. And to give you an understanding of how important the Pennsylvania Senate race is to Democrats' chance of maintaining control, if Mehmet Oz wins the Republican, they have just an 18% chance of holding on to the chamber. If John Fetterman, the Democrat, wins, look at this. The Democrats' chances jump all the way up to 70%. So Pennsylvania, a really key state. Back to you, Allison. Okay, Harry, thank you very much. I think that that would be great for our dueling panel segment tonight. I like it. Okay, so uh, I'll take Pennsylvania. Set the clock, please, for four minutes, if you would. Thank you very much. And we're back with Scott Jennings, Keith Boykin, and also joining us is CNN presidential historian Tim Naftali. Great to have all of you. Okay, spotlight on Pennsylvania. This weekend, tomorrow, former President Obama will be in Pittsburgh President Biden will be in Philly. Former President Trump will be in Latrobe. Senator Susan Collins is going. Pennsylvania must mean a lot. Uh, What do you see happening in Pennsylvania from your historical perspective, Tim? Well, I remember how Oprah changed changed everything when she came out in support of Barack Obama uh, in 08. And uh, she's got magic. And she, I think the fact that she chose Fetterman over Dr. Oz, whose career, frankly, she created, absolutely, is a big deal. Now, whether that tips the balance, I don't know, but the Oprah factor is important. Let's hear what Fetterman said today about that endorsement from Oprah. We all know that Oprah is the creator of Dr. Oz's TV career, and she went for you instead. What does this mean to you and your campaign? Uh, I mean, she's an icon. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's an honor. And I'm so grateful. And, you know, she understands uh, what's at stake here in this race. Do you, uh, Scott, do you think that tips the balance for Fetterman? No, uh, I mean, I, not really. I think this race is incredibly close. The polling aggregators have it literally a dead heat. Um, I would rather, I think, be Oz than Fetterman just because of the trend lines on this thing. I don't think Oprah... Uh, is going to be any more determinative than Trump or Obama or Biden or any of these other um, surrogates that are going in. I think, uh, it's interesting, both campaigns have real deficiencies in some ways. Oz has had a persistent image deficiency since the primary. Fetterman obviously has 
candidate deficiencies as well. So um, I, I really don't know what's going to happen again. I, I think I'd rather be us than them, but uh, we'll see. Here was Oz's closing argument today. Let me play that for you. So I'm going to ask you to pose a question to 10 friends. Pick anyone you want. They can be conservative Democrats, independents, con- uh, Republicans, but you're going to ask 10 people. That's my pledge. Can you all do that? Yeah. All right. Here's the question. Are you happy with where the country's headed? Now, if they say yes, you're going to gently take their car keys away. They shouldn't be driving. Um, it's funny, Keith. Um, Charlotte Alter has a piece in Time magazine call, saying that Pennsylvania is the vibes election. And the way she describes the vibes is basically if a character's candidate is revealed by their choices and their personality is observed through their public appearances, then the vibe is a vaporous mixture of both those things. The general impression they make on a normal person who isn't paying close attention. Mm. And she is arguing that, you know, Fetterman's all about the vibes. You kind of know who he is, you know, at first blush. Um, your thoughts about what's happening in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I think that vibes argument is, is dead on with Pennsylvania. This is the, the vibiest election of them all, uh, in part because John Fetterman is a candidate who just reeks of sort of middle America, middle class, working class guy. And Mehmet Oz is this TV star doctor who doesn't even live in the state of Pennsylvania, who had to move there from New Jersey, has all these homes all over the place, this millionaire, and he just is not relatable. And every time he tries to be relatable, he goes to a grocery store, he does something, it just never comes off as sincere. And I think people can see right through that. So, Tim, in his, does history say that you need relatability or, as Scott has pointed out, uh, Fetterman also has deficiencies, particularly as we saw in the debate uh, after his stroke. Well, one of the things that we're seeing now is a pushback against elites around the country. And you have to ask yourself, which of these two candidates um, smacks of being part of the elite? <laughs> I, I have to, and no. that's the lot. Sorry, the oh, bell just oh, rang, oh, guys. We had oh, a lot more to say. I mean, there's, that's, there's, there's nothing more elite than never having to work a day in your life like John Fetterman. That's over the, over the time. I mean, you let them beat on my guy. You let him beat on him. What are you talking about? More elite than trying to take our four minute time away from us. Thank you very much. So, this elitism will stop. Give me my four minutes. Kara Swisher, Liam Donovan, Maria Cardona are back. Maria, listen, you heard that question about tell 10 of your friends, ask them, are they happy with the country is going? You didn't like that. I think it's a faulty question. And hopefully, that's what Republicans are banking on. Because if you ask me if the country is going in the right direction, a, you know, dyed in the wool Democrat progressive, I would say no. And by no means does that mean I will ever vote for a Republican, because I think Republicans and especially the Republican Party today is part and parcel of the problem. They want to take away my rights. They want to destroy our democracy. They are absolutely all about election denial. And no one has the backbone to stand up to the leader of their party right now, which is Donald Trump, who's about to announce for president. God forbid that is going to take us in a completely continuing wrong direction. So I think that is the wrong arbiter for people and for people to try to understand where this country is going. So since Maria has no passion yeah. at all <laughs> what do you really about think this, and I feel like I just can't understand how you feel, I want to know what is the arbiter in your mind? Like, is, I mean, is that the wrong question? What would be the right one? Well, Maria and I are partisans. The partisans are going to get out. They're going to, they're going to you know, turn out the way they normally do. The question is the independents. And in a, in a uh, referendum election, a midterm election, that is going to be about the party in power and how they're feeling, I think that cuts differently. And the questions are, what's going on with the economy? How do they feel about inflation? How do they feel about how, how far their paychecks are going? And that's not going to help the president. It's going to be, I think, the, the fundamentals prevail. Pro- uh, political gravity 
wins the day. And the question is, can Republicans take advantage in time uh, with all this early vote that's in? I think they're catching up. The trajectory is right. But the question is whether they run out of time. Is this the conversation that's actually happening, though? Uh, you know, I think everyone's become reductive. Online has made us all reductive. So, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is considered an intellectual, which she is not. Um, you know, but I'm just saying, this is how you do it. These sort of angry flash mob tweets and stuff like that are how people are talking in politics. Now, I do think people are actually more reflective in real life, you know, and I don't think everyone's on this thing, just like all these political mm-hmm. people are. I'm not, I, I, I'm not on political Twitter a lot either. Mm-hmm. And I think people care about the economy. They can pay their jobs. Their housing is expensive. And, and they do care about abortion, but yes. that is in front of it. And I think that's normal. And I think a lot of people do think, um, if you press them, like, yeah, they seem a little extreme and crazy, but I have to deal with my house right now, or I have to deal with you know, living in my car, I have to deal with jobs. And so, so the theoretical to the tangible is really the issue here. Well, but it, except for, I, I would say yes, but I have talked to many women, and I kind of wish Laura Barone <laughs> Lopez, who was here earlier, was here because she talked about a co- conversations, various conversations she has had for people with people in Pennsylvania and in other battleground states. And a lot of them, a lot of the women are saying, people are saying the economy, and yes, I care about the economy, but when I go into the booth, I think... The economy is going to come back. My rights will not. She talked to several Republican women who told her that they are going to vote for the Democrat because of abortion, and they're not telling their husbands. I think this is an underlying current that is not being measured in the current polls. As you know, newly registered women, newly registered people of color will never show up in these polls because pollsters do not measure them. Ticket splitting, is that what's going to happen? I think there's going to be some of that. I mean, people we have shown a propensity to look at different races, different matchups differently. But I think the thing is, these it's not that it's not showing up in the polls. It's that it's baked in. This has been baked in since May and June. It's why the wheels haven't fallen off. It's why Democrats are as competitive as they are. It's why, even though we expect the House to go where it's going, they are remain competitive across the Senate map. It's going to be really close. It's going to be really close because of the dynamics that you're talking about. It's not hidden. It's right there. So what you're saying is I'll be ticket splitting. I have family in Pennsylvania, and they're Mm -hmm. they. They're, they, they're, they're Republican, and they're going to vote for Oz. Um, and, but Doug Mastriano, uh, you know, That's he's That's cra- in the well, last few elections. Allison Nashaka Khan once said, to the limit, to the wire. <laughs> Here I we see are. It. Well, well done. done. Well, we were all listening with rapt attention. That was a good, that was a good <laughs> panel you had right there. No elitism here. That was just, <laughs> just Shaka Khan. A little bit. That's all we can do. And you get extra points for Shaka Khan, honestly. Uh, all right, we want to know what you all think about this. You can tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. We'll be right back. New tonight, the January 6th committee giving former President Trump more time to turn over subpoenaed documents after he missed the original deadline today. Saying in a statement, Trump, quote, must begin producing records no later than next week, and he remains under subpoena for deposition testimony starting on November 14th. That is, sources tell CNN that Trump is eyeing that date, November 14th, to maybe potentially launch his 2024 presidential campaign. Joining me now, former RNC communications director Doug High, Liam Donovan, and Maria Cardona are still here with us. I just want to put this in. It reminds me of that that book, that no good, probable bad day, whatever it's called. Here is what Trump had to say last night in Iowa when he was asked, well, having a dangling of a carrot on this moment. Here he is. In order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, 
I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? Very, very, very probably. Very, very, very probably. Well, Doug, will he very, very, very probably run? Or is there some political aspect be, of, of why he might not be announcing? Do you have a sense? Let me, let me say something about Donald Trump I've never said before. Please. He was very consistent in his messaging right there. Very, he very, said, very, 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 very probably. <laughs> very, each very time probably. it was three varies. So, so he has some message discipline, which we don't always see with him. We know a few things about Donald Trump, right? One, he likes big pots of money that he can try and move around. If he formally announces, that changes. So we have to think about that. We also know that he likes playing the victim. So, and all these things conflict. If he, if he announces, he can play the victim better. They're coming after me because mm-hmm. it's politics. The other is Donald Trump loves attention. And, you know, we were talking over the summer that he might announce around July 4th, mm-hmm. will he or won't he? And this goes back to one of the key things about Donald Trump. Everything he does is same bat time, same bat channel. We all tune in next week. Well, listen, on that point of the money in the, in the pots, I mean, well, it's very, it was very, very, very probably a good, <laughs> I don't know. But I'll tell you what, look at this screen for a second, because here are the ways in terms of how it can move around a little bit, those pots of money, I want everyone to really understand. So um, if he were to announce a 2024 campaign, everyone, the RNC, by their own policy, not a lawful one, not based on legislative or otherwise or policy, he, they won't pay for his legal bills. If he announces they're limited to raising $2,900 from individuals and 5000 from PACs, you've got the PAC not being able to underwrite campaign activities, no more personal fundraising with corporations and trade associations. So, I mean, Liam, there's a lot to just the announcement. It might be part of the idea of um, wanting to just get the attention of Willie or Woney, but that, those, that's a quite hefty list of reasons that you don't have power over your purse any longer. Is a heavy lift. He, he likes to have his pots of money. I think the thing that is striking fear in the hearts of Republican operatives right now is that timing. You mentioned mid-November. We might very well have a uh, climactic runoff in the state of Georgia in early December, which sets up deja vu to how Republicans almost won, then lost the Senate majority last time. So I think that might be another factor, depending on how things shake out on Tuesday, is uh, do, do uh, you know, is Georgia going to run off and is Herschel going to be affected by what he does? That's true. Maria, also, I mean, I think Mike Pence's book comes out the 15th, right? I mean, not like he's doing it the same day, but I mean, there's something about the 14th. Yeah. I don't know. What do you yeah. think? I mean, I think he might look at this and say, this is going to be my opportunity to clear the field, right? If, if he saw Ron DeSantis's ad he's probably not gonna like it right and then mike pence he might just do it as an ego thing to clear the field and to tell everyone i'm the god not you Ron DeSantis. i'm god and i'm doing this right now in terms of the rnc policy if it's not law the rnc can say oh we changed our mind even if you yeah. run we're gonna go ahead and pay your legal bills i mean they've done that before and so that might not be something that keeps him from doing it but one thing that could keep him on the track to doing it is perhaps he thinks it's protection from prosecution because then he'll say, well, I'm a candidate. And then, you know, maybe the the DOJ will have to think twice about how they go about doing it. And then that's when they talk about the special. That's a good point. Cause you're mentioning, yeah, the special council mm-hmm. discussion about whether or not to have it, to have the, the insulation Correct. of being able to say, look, we're not going after a political opponent, mm-hmm. not a politicized department. But then there's the, I mean, almost the exhaustion factor in a way, right? I mean, you, you guys are both Republican operators and strategists on these things. I mean, if you're going into an announcement knowing I'm going to have to pay legal bills for you that are probably going to be one of many, does that count against the enthusiasm, you think? Or is the base that he has potentially enough to overshadow that? 
the victimhood that, that, that Doug <laughs> mentioned is, is powerful, and it's a, it's a financial driver. I mean, he taps mm-hmm. into that to, to replenish those coffers, so it's a self-looking ice cream cone in a sense. Um, but I don't think it, it, um, it necessarily puts a damper on it. But I, but I think you, you, ha- you can be very clever and, and dance this line, but at a certain point you have to jump. You either want the protection or you want to control your purse. Yeah, and Maria actually very, I shouldn't say actually, very smart, very <laughs> smartly, very smartly talked about RNC Maria, policy. Maria, obviously, That's what I meant. very smart. I meant because you were yes. talking about RNC policy, right. not DNC policy. Right. You know, one of the things that the RNC has is what's called Rule 11. And Rule 11 is an ironclad thing that says they can't get involved in primaries. Even if Kevin McCarthy is running for re-election, they can't get involved in his congressional primary unless the state of California Republican Party files a Rule 11 letter declaring him the candidate. Hmm. Well... They can get rid of that rule whenever they want to, especially if Donald Trump tells them to. They may be likely to do so, in which case the other candidates are going to be out of luck. So the rules are there ain't no rules. Right. And we've seen seen Ronna McDaniel essentially kind of kneel at Donald Trump. I will do whatever you want. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, when you think about that, though, and going forward, I mean, you you mentioned the idea of um, almost all of you are presuming that Trump would be the obvious RNC nominee. Do we think that's the case? I mean, DeSantis, his ad albeit a, you know, reminiscent of the Rams ad and, of course, of course um, the, the be a farmer notion. I think, do you think he could actually overtake him? I think the fact that President Trump is down in Florida kind of planting his flag, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that he's even flirting with this very, very probably stuff means that he feels, hears footsteps and is trying to get out there to, to right. you know, box out. Yeah, and the party kind of breaks down like this. You've got 10% that will never vote for Donald Trump in any fashion. You've got 40% that will do anything Donald Trump want, wants to do. That's a marching order. About 50% voted for Trump. They sort of like him. Some of them are exhausted. They're looking at other people. But that core 40%, they are the most active in the primary process, and that gives Trump a huge leg up. You know, just as President Biden has been talking about it, remember, he, he has himself said that he has, is his intention to run for re-election, mm-hmm. but he has not been as non-committal, but he also has not been as firm in saying, mm-hmm. I absolutely will do so. And the midterm elections mm-hmm. is really this clear mark, right? Mm-hmm. They've put down this as the key marker. So you got to wonder, not just with who is in power, but what else will change going forward? We're talking about 2024, but Allison... I mean, Tuesday is almost here, and that will be the key date in the days following that. And, of course, we mentioned the prospect maybe even of a runoff or if it's close and as deadlocked as people are predicting. We have a long road. Oh, we're definitely going to have a long night, I can tell you that, on Tuesday. And Mm -hmm. I think that people are going to have to settle in and get comfortable because all of our experts have said we may not even know next week. So so we'll see. All right. Meanwhile, $1.6 billion. It's the biggest jackpot ever for the lottery. And before you start counting your money, it turns out the lottery is making it even harder for us to win. Well, shoot. I didn't mean action. The Powerball jackpot is now $1.6 billion, breaking the record for the largest in lottery history. And if you think these billion-dollar jackpots are getting more frequent, you're right. Excuse me. The jackpots are getting bigger, but your chances of winning are getting slimmer. Joining me now to explain is Harry Enten, along with Keith Boykin and Tim Naftali. So they're stacking the deck against us more since in the past few years, aren't they? Yeah, they basically made a shift back in 2015 in which... You know, you have to match the white balls, all of them, and then the power ball. And they essentially made the white balls 
uh, you changed it from 1 to 59, you could select, to 1 to 69. And that essentially changed the odds. So you had a little bit there, you can see it on the screen, a 1 in 175 million chance of winning you used to. And now it's a 1 in 292 million chance of winning. I should point out, though, you have a better chance of winning the Powerball than the Mega Millions by a little bit, which is a little bit north of 1 in, I think it's like 1 in 303 million. So look, the odds are better. Yeah, so you're saying I have a chance. That's crazy. I mean, I, I don't think that many people know that. They've made it harder. So, I mean, everybody has noticed that there's a bigger jackpots, but you just don't know that you don't stand a snowball's chance in hell. You, you really don't. I mean, if you, you know, line up the last few times that, you know, we've gotten the largest jackpots, they all tend to be in the last few years. They've made it significantly more difficult. But, you know, to me, it's like, okay, maybe some schools are getting some extra money. Maybe some, you know, kids are now going to be able to go to high school. And, you know, money shouldn't be free. It shouldn't be free. And I, but, I, you know, it also goes through my head of what I would necessarily want with the millions. Yes, of what would you? You know, I think that if I won, you know, the $1.6 billion, of course, as a lump sum annuity, it would be like only a little less than 700 or 780 million, somewhere around there. Rip off. Rip off. Uh, I think that I would probably buy myself a diet A&W cream soda factory, mm-hmm. and I would have all the cream soda that I would want. That's the cutest thing I've ever heard. Um, Tim, <laughs> uh, have you ever bought a lottery ticket? Uh, a couple of times. You have? G- generally speaking, I buy lottery tickets for my mom. My mother oh. likes to play the lottery. Uh, so I'll go to the drugstore and pick it up for her. Okay. Um, Are you playing in this one? Uh, no, but, you know, look... For $2, it's a lot of fun. There's yes. a bit of fantasy and, you know. It's worth it. But as long as you know you're, you're not going to win. Well, I don't know that. That's you don't know. Somebody's got to win. Why can't it be win? win? But then if, you, then if you win a little something, because, of course, there are ways of winning without winning the whole one. Right, but why can't I win the whole jackpot? I, I hope you do. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. You're Somebody welcome. has got to win. Somebody's winning. Somebody's Eventually, gotta win. somebody's going to win. The chances that one of us will win are very unlikely. But somebody in this country or in this universe is going to win this lottery. And I think that well, fantasy is worth $2. Yeah. It is worth $2. Yeah. But just, just don't get disappointed. If you don't, <laughs> I, 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 I'm okay. just hoping that if one of you win, you'll cut me in a little bit. All I'm asking is for you like two tell million. Not no to. question about that. <laughs> just give I'm me saying right now. For the no cream question. soda. Are you for kidding? The for the soda. lifetime supply right. of cream soda. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Keith, um, do you play the lottery ever? I have played it. Whenever it gets over uh, about half a billion dollars, I will play. Okay. What would you do with 1.6 billion dollars? Um, after I take care of all the people around me, I'd start a foundation and help out the causes that I believe in. And that's the right answer because you can't possibly spend it. But that right, wouldn't right. that be fun to be able to just dole it out to whatever cause mm-hmm. you like? That, that's exactly what I'd like to do. You know, I care about so many issues and I can't do enough about those. I wouldn't be giving it to political candidates. I know that. But, I mean, not that you shouldn't do that. But. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that before Uh-oh. the midterm. I wouldn't say that before the midterm. Well, that's but, what I, <laughs> that was an <laughs> off message. But, totally <laughs> off message. But, but I, I, would, I would give it out to causes that I believe in. I feel that is my fantasy, actually. Yeah. The Lorene Powell Jobs fantasy, no. which is you just have, yes, no, I swear, yes, Harry, no, this, you We should be more self-indulgent in this with, fantasy world we live in. $1.6 billion, you can do both. You can have all your cream soda. Yeah. yeah. And you How can much cream soda do you think I can, can drink in a day? You've said yeah. a lifetime. But, but, right. I, 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 that would t- but it, it you'll be employing people, Harry. So you're doing a good thing. And you're, that's don't right. forget you're going to be employing people. How about owning a minor league baseball team? I could do that. Okay. That's you know, okay, and that's I can employ, employ some more people. Yeah, or reconstituting the Montreal Expos. It's about time. There are a lot of things that could be done with that money. Yeah. Bring I, a third baseball team back to New York. That's what I would do. Okay, that's I, I just noble. feel like 
I having lived in Harlem for like 20 years and now I live in Los Angeles, I see homeless people on the street. I feel like I just can't just take all this money and use it for myself. And I still I'm going to use it for myself. Sure, right? of course. But I'm, I'm, I feel like I have to use some of it to help other people. I feel it'd be really selfish of me to take this money I didn't even earn and not to try to spread it out to help others. Well, I also think it would make you sick. Aren't there all sorts of stories of people who won the lottery and it ruined their lives? Yes, yep. there are. Her. There, there are those stories, but they tend to be outliers. It's more of a myth than anything else. You know, I will say with all these wonderful answers of giving back, I believe it's like 87% of Americans said that they would share the lottery winnings with their friends and family. Mm-hmm. But also of note, I believe 62 or 63% said that they would quit their current job if they won. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not say what I would do in this situation, <laughs> but I, I would want to hang out with you guys more. So, you know. Oh, you're sweet. Yes, and also, I mean, they do say that there are some secrets to if you win. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to lawyer up, of yes. course. Yeah, sure. You're supposed to, as you said, take the lump sum. Mm-hmm. I think you're supposed to stay anonymous, for sure. Oh, yeah. That you helps. Can. Yes. Some states don't allow that. Oh, they don't allow it, because that helps not ruin your life. But I wouldn't accept it right away. I would, I would take some time and think about it, talk to some people yeah. before I actually went and accepted the money. And, and don't forget that a lot of this money does go to the government uh, in taxes and will fund all kinds of other things. That was your point. Uh, one other piece of advice to the audience. If you want to win and get the biggest jackpot possible and not split the pie, yes. pick numbers above 31 because a lot of people play anniversaries Reason. and birthdays. Right. Yeah. And, of course, no month has more than 31 days in it. That's a good secret. Yes, mm-hmm. that's an excellent secret. Okay, so, Laura, you've heard the altruistic and somewhat self-indulgent uh, choices that we would make if winning $1.6 billion, what would you do? I can tell you, it probably wouldn't have a cream soda factory. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, the Montreal Expos wouldn't be. I'm sorry, Harry. I do love you. But I may have other... I would probably... I think I would be a little bit of like a an angel-type investor. And I would go around the world trying to find people who I think were really in need of it and surprise them with it, almost like that undercover boss, but I wouldn't be so obvious, like putting a mustache on and go, oh, no, it's <laughs> yeah. not Laura Coates. Here's the money for you. That, and I would probably buy a couple things for myself. And by a couple, I mean... One point billion. Uh-huh. Um, I hope you win because that would be great <laughs> watching you be undercover boss and going around surprising people. That like would be an like, awesome like a, like a bad 80s movie when you're like, oh, the girl comes down and the glasses come off and suddenly yes. she's supposed to be someone different than That's she was right. and she had the stairs. Yes. That would be my version of it. Sure. That, something like that. I would love that. That would be great. Well, All right. Well, um, I have a ticket, ready. so nobody else needs to buy one. But anyway. Look, if we don't see you tomorrow, I know you'll be okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a Saturday. But either way, it's, I'll call uh, you well, and let you know. Well call, well, call me and split it. What do you mean, let me know? Don't, like, tell me I'm rich all. But no, 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 let me know and give me half of it. Got it. you know, there you go. No problem. Anyway, everyone, get ready to turn your clocks back an hour because you might need more time to think of a better way to spend all the money because Sunday is the end of daylight saving time. Apparently it's saving, not savings. Who knew? But does it have to be? Grammatically correct? We'll talk about it next. All right, everyone, it's that time of year again, Allison. Right now, we are currently in daylight savings time, but come Sunday at 2 a.m., we will fall back and turn the clock back one hour. That means we'll conceivably gain one hour of sleep and push sunrise and sunset earlier, and then come mid-March, we'll be springing forward into daylight saving time, and we'll turn our clocks ahead an hour. 
now. I mean, I do like the extra hour of sleep, but I don't like that it gets dark at like 4.30 and 5 p.m. That's so depressing. So My earlier, kids don't care at all. They don't? <laughs> they, they don't they wake me up no matter what, oh. but that's fine. Well, earlier this year, the Senate passed a bill to make daylight saving time permanent, but then it stalled in the House. Mm-hmm. So the push for permanent daylight saving time has gotten some mixed reviews. The golf industry restaurants and other businesses are in favor because you can imagine it, it stays lighter longer. That's amazing. The industry of the golf, but also parents who don't want their children waiting in the dark for the school bus and sleep experts who say it harms our circadian rhythms. They also object. So back with us now here, Allison, to talk more about it. Kara Swisher, Liam Donovan and Maria Cardona. You know, first of all, there are the sort of um, those in favor of and arguments yeah. against does it surprise you that it hasn't gone anywhere? Do you expect this something that would be actually resolved? You have personal opinions of it. We're all probably sleep deprived in our own way. Do you have an opinion on it? I, I do. I don't think we need it. But maybe we need to figure out which side of it we want, right? I think most people would want a longer day because they feel like they're more productive and, you know, more gets done. Um, but I think we should just decide one way or the other. I grew up in Puerto Rico. There is no daylight savings time there. It's always the same time. And I remember when I was in school, um, I had to, when I was calling my parents, I had to figure out, wait a minute, is it the same time? Is it an hour earlier? Is it an hour later? Um, but I think in general, the reason why we had daylight savings time originally, right, it's not really there, right? It comes from colonial times and most of the country was farming. And so it was a reason to do that. I don't think that exists anymore. But I think people are dug in into the ways that they, they like their days and why. So I kind of don't think it's going to go anywhere. Many hadn't thought about the social reasons as well. I mean, the idea of children at the school bus mm-hmm. very early in the regular, right. sort of going away mm-hmm. to school in the darkness, coming back. I've been mean, from Minnesota. It was kind of that way. But also the idea that there's certain industries who want it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very telling. It's the idea of trying to consume more, more time to buy, more time right. to play, more time to spend maybe time and money. That correlation can't possibly be a reason to influence Congress, right? There's no lobbying. (laughs) Oh, no. Ever. I I hardly think about this topic at all whatsoever. I just do whatever my Apple Watch tells me to. (laughs) So it's time to stand up then, Kara. Exactly. That's all all I want is some sort of technology that says, put that donut down and just did this to your circadian rhythm or whatever, um, or put this on. I, I really, I don't care. Do you, so, well, I wonder, do you care? Because I know I care about this, thinking about I think what, how it relates to my sleep. To care. I, I, want, I want to know who I go talk to to get that extra hour of sleep, because in my house, that's not yeah, how it works. Exactly. Yeah. But, we but, both have a lot of kids. Yeah. Eight, right between eight, us. Eight between us. But the funny thing is, this wasn't supposed to get this far. It was a, a unanimous consent in the Senate. Nobody objected. Yeah. Everybody assumed someone would. So the fact that it even got halfway there yeah. is just a, a funny fluke of procedure. So I think now we actually have to grapple with this seriously in a way we haven't done in mm-hmm. 40 years. Well, the House says that they've been over they haven't acted yet because they've been overwhelmed by voters with split opinions and warnings from sleep specialists. It's kind of interesting because I wonder, I mean, are there not other areas that they've been overwhelmed by right. split opinions yeah. from voters? Like, this is this is the one hang-up? Yeah. This is the one hurdle? And, <laughs> but you know what? Local um, <coughs> governments can change it. There's a place in Indiana, I believe, that doesn't have it. Yeah. And so what? it's not really keeping, if you have like a locality and the majority of the people there don't want it, they could get rid of it if a place in Indiana can do it. I wonder though, I mean, thinking about this, when I think back to the safety aspect of it, and I think about the way in which we've had all these studies now, time mm-hmm. and time again, about the importance of sleep, yeah. the idea of thinking about mental health as an overall right. society now, really appreciating it in different ways, this does sort of tap into maybe a level of 
evolving as a society to think about, well, is there a reason other than commerce, right. a reason other than something that is just inertia, mm-hmm. where we actually change things based on those studies, based on the health. social science, based on right? health? I mean, right? we don't always see this. It's usually a big fight. Yeah. And now it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that, and you're probably right, Kara, I don't think very many people really think about this all no. that much, no. which is probably why it won't go anywhere. No. But this issue of sleep deprivation is a big one, especially here in the United States, right? I think we are probably the country, maybe next to Japan, that is the most sleep deprived in the world. And sleep is such a benefit to mental health, to your physical health, to so many things. I mean, I, I'm lucky because I can sleep whenever, however, and whichever way. And I know I'm very lucky in that because very a lot of people suffer from insomnia and not getting a good night's sleep. You know, it has to do with screen time. That's what's really been the, the entry right. of that with kids and everybody else is how much mm-hmm. screen time you have. And when you're using it late at night, those are the really interesting studies. Now, in China, they're cutting people have to, the teens have to put them down and they like, they led, not legislated, it's not really a legislature there, is it? Um, but, you know, they, <laughs> they mandate. They, they do something, they stop. <laughs> they say stop. And so the question is, what do we do about that? Yeah, it's the addictive element, the lighting element, and the screen time. And during the pandemic, everybody, adults and worse. children, got worse. And so that's one thing that I think is very interesting to study is what that is. Sleep, dep- sleep deprived, screen time. Allison, I want you to come in this panel as well. <laughs> yeah, you, you and I wouldn't know anything about sleep deprivation. I don't deprivation. know. What, what um, time is it right these now? These hours, exactly. Uh, but I'm know. like Maria. I'm a sleep champion. I pride myself. <laughs> yes. On, yeah, right. on, on that. Um, thank goodness. But mm-hmm. I'd also like to hear more about the eight children that... Oh, uh, I know. Later. later. They <laughs> snuck that later. in, didn't they? Later, we're going to get married, even though we're already married. And yeah. I'm gay. But yeah. we're, and then we're going to do a TV show. A I reality know. show. That's fantastic. You know, watch out, Kardashians. <laughs> yes. I, there's a lot to hear there. first. There, there, there's a show there, Allison. I, yeah. I, I hear it. Yeah. I yeah. see it. Discovery I, Plus, maybe. They share children, but they're married to other people. It's all mm, very fascinating. It's going to be good. It's fascinating Isn't to that me. wife swap, or maybe it's just pundit swap? I don't yeah, know. Are we doing that yeah, right now? I don't yeah. know. But That's you know what? Maybe. maybe if we had that extra hour, you'd be in that sort of leap year programming. Like, it's only available yeah. for daylight saving time. Yeah. I'm still stuck on but you're not that daylight leap saving time. Exactly. If I'm we're not, going okay. to leap year, I have to leave this <laughs> panel <laughs> immediately. We're not doing leap year. Kara's like, I'm done <laughs> with this. We're going to talk about Elon. I, so about Elon. I think we should I can let Elon see that things decide. are uh, running off the rails there. Yeah. So I because think we're we sleep, sleep deprived. <laughs> we would like to go to sleep. We right. want them to sign off and tell that's us. Right. That's why, Allison, I need the hour at 2 a.m. every fall time back. on Sunday. I will be there with bells on in flannels. In fact, don't even span down in this camera. I'm already asleep. <laughs> it's uh, it's either that or Kara has something else in that mug. I'm not sure. Yes. Um, yes. But yes. in any event, it's time for all of our viewers to sound off. We'll read your tweets next. All right, everyone, it's time to sound off. Let's see what you have been saying tonight. Oh, there's one on daylight saving. Here you go. It's from DW Bullion. It says, no, we shouldn't. We need more sun in the morning, so it makes perfect sense to revert to standard time. Nice to have extra sun in the evening during spring and summer when the weather is nice. Leave it alone. Cancel something else. Okay, Hmm. this one is from A.H. Slewy. No, I guess meaning don't get rid of it. It's a don't cancel it. It's too dark in the morning for kids to walk to school. That's your point, Laura. 
It is. I mean, you ever see it? I mean, try to get your kid to the bus stop or to school and they're at the corner. I mean, it's awful to see them in the darkness. It's just too, too dark for me. But then you have another one from um, Bob Smith. It says, didn't realize it's been in place to reduce energy consumption. It definitely reduces my energy when I lose an hour of sleep. So it's time for it to go. All right. Uh, who knew? People care. See? It affects everybody it. except that sliver in Indiana. Uh, you know where to find us at Allison Camerata <laughs> and at the Laura Coates. Now, everyone, on to some people who are making good and good news. The top CNN heroes of 2022, they've been announced, one of whom will be named the CNN Hero of the Year by you, our viewers. So we'll be reintroducing each of you to our top 10 as you vote for your favorite in the next five weeks. And as the Russian war in Ukraine rages on, more than seven and a half million people have fled the country, creating the world's fastest growing refugee crisis since World War II. So top 10 CNN hero Teresa Gray is doing all she can to help. A paramedic and a nurse from Alaska, she sends small self-sufficient medical teams to natural and humanitarian disasters. Since February, she and her volunteers have traveled to Romania three times. What we were expecting to see was large groups of people housed in tent cities. And actually, they are housing these refugees in individual dorm rooms. They've got food, they've got shelter, but the trauma is the same. They've lost almost everything. This is filled with women, children, and elderly. There is a flu outbreak currently that obviously affects the children. We also have pre-existing conditions. It isn't just about fixing the broken arm or giving you medicine. It's making that human connection. Sometimes you need to hold their hand and walk them down a hallway and listen to them. We try to meet the needs of whatever presents to us. Smile, everybody. Human suffering has no borders. People are people, and love is love. Teresa and her volunteers have provided care and comfort to more than 1,000 Ukrainian refugees in need. Everyone, go to CNNHeroes.com right now to vote for her for CNN Hero of the Year or any of your favorite top 10 heroes. You can vote for any or all of them up to 10 times a day, every day. Everyone, thanks so much for watching. Have a great weekend. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.